0: This Bible talk titled, God is Patient, is on Matthew 1, verses 1-17. It's the first sermon in our short series, A Great Light Dawns, on Matthew 1-4, and it was given at Rabena on Sunday, the 27th of November, 2022. I buy a lot of books online. Actually, it's a source of tension within my marriage. Uh, I'm a chronic book buyer, but an aspirational book reader. Anyway, at the recommendation of a friend, I recently bought another book. I like to shop around online, to get a good price, and I don't want to pay for postage if that's at all possible. One website always offers me free delivery. They said that I could get it before Christmas. Another website didn't have the book that I wanted. They never seem to have the books that I want anymore, Another website offered me free delivery and promised it to me within two days. Now, have a think about that for a moment. Which one do you think I went with? Free delivery, but wait for it for seven weeks? Free delivery, but wait for it for two days? Of course, being a product of the Enlightenment, brought up on the idea that progress is a virtue, that endless consumerism will somehow satisfy my aching longing for transcendence or at least distract me from it long enough until I buy something else... I bought the book from the website that promised delivery for me within two days. But here's the thing. Here's the stinging irony of my purchase. I couldn't wait to get my hands on a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Can you see my problem? I couldn't wait to get my hands on a book with the word patience in the title. I had to have it as soon as possible. Why wait if you can have it now? Who likes waiting for things? Who likes exercising patience? Who likes being in long queues? Who likes sitting in traffic jams and at traffic lights? Who likes being left on hold on the phone? Who wants to be waiting in a waiting room? Why wait when you can get it somewhere else? And if you pay more, you can have it now. We can skip the line. We can avoid the the rush. We can book ahead. Who has time to be patient anymore? Friends, we've forgotten what patience is. We have no patience for patience. We live in a fast-paced, hectic and impatient world. A world that can't wait and won't wait for anything. But here we are all now, waiting. Waiting for Christmas to come. Waiting for the holidays to begin. Waiting for the relatives to go back home again. Patience is a virtue. My impatient grandmother would often chastise me if only it was exhibited for me as a virtue. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, says the Bible, an exhibition of love, an exhibition of love, says the Apostle Paul. Patience is at the very heart of God's character. God works patiently across multiple generations to achieve his mission. God is patient. And in the fullness of time, he's revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. Patient Christians live at the pace that was given to us by God. We accept incompleteness and we wait. And so when it comes to being patient, we'd like to think that God's people might be a little bit more patient. But we're not any better, are we? We're just as impatient as everybody else, just as impatient as our neighbours we want things to change quickly. We want things to happen now. We are busy with activity. We want to focus on everything. We want to miss out on nothing. When and how much longer and are we there yet aren't just impatient questions asked from the back seat of the family car on long road trips. They are also asked by impatient Christians almost every week in church. When are you going to do this? When can we do that again? Between now and Christmas Day, we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, specifically Matthew chapters 1 to 4, on the origins and the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. It's a series I've called A Great Light Dawns, but I'm hoping that it might start to dawn on us that following Jesus isn't simply about being able to misquote some things that he once said and knowing some stuff that he once did. Following Jesus means living like him now a life that both walks and talks, the walk and the talk. I'm hoping that it dawns on us that God's ways aren't our ways, that God's timing isn't in sync with our time zones, that God's into saving people and not at all concerned with daylight savings. Efficiency and expediency are not part of the Almighty's divine work ethic. In fact, the sovereign creator of the cosmos doesn't even wear a watch, let alone a smart one. God isn't like us, but we need to become more like him. Because unlike us, God is more than happy to wait, forever willing to be very, very patient and very patient with us. And so while Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 looks like a list of unpronounceable foreign names, sounds as exciting as reading the yellow pages in your spare time or creating your own account on Ancestry.com, what Matthew 1, 1 to 17 actually tells us is everybody waits for Christmas. God's promises require patience. God is the God of patience. And so Matthew begins his account of the life of Jesus with a genealogy. He starts with Jesus' family of origin. It's a genogram, friends, a family tree. And Matthew is meticulous with his written details. Every name painstakingly recorded for us. Apart from it being Jesus' family of origin, two names are highlighted there for us in the headline. Have you got your Bible there? Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's see it together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, The son of Abraham. If promise and fulfillment are the framework for Matthew's gospel, then the completion of God's promises are found in Jesus Christ. And so God's promises, they begin with Abraham. That's why he's mentioned there in the opening verse. And while Matthew goes on to tell us in verse 2 that Abraham is the father of Isaac, Abraham is also the father of the promises of God. God spoke to Abraham first. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And so Matthew's genealogy starts there with him. Written mostly to a Jewish audience, Matthew assumes some prior Old Testament knowledge on your part. But unless you've just celebrated Yom Kippur, unless you're wearing your kippah here this morning, then let's take a look together at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed God the father of all creation speaks to a man whose name means Exalted father. That's what Abram means. His name means exalted father. God tells Abram to leave his father's house so that God can make him a father of a great nation. Abram's name is changed to Abraham, and so he becomes the exalted father of many nations. God promises Abraham land and people and blessing. But the key idea here for us, friends, is fatherhood. Abraham is the father of the promises of God. But Abraham had to wait a long time for Isaac. Throughout all the generations listed here for you in Matthew 1, 1-17, Abraham waited even longer. The fulfilment of the promises to Abraham are found in the promised son there named Jesus. Abraham is the father of the promises. And if Abraham is the father of God's promises, then David is the king of God's promises David is also a son of Abraham. Here's what God said to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. <coughs> Excuse me. God said to David, "'When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, "'I will raise up your offspring after you, "'who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. "'He shall build a house for my name, "'and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. "'I will be to him a father.'" And he shall be to me a son. God promises David's son. God promises David, King David, a son. A son of David whose kingdom will never ever end. The son of David would rule as king forever over God's people. The son of David, see it there, will also be the son of God. It was David's son, Solomon, who built God's temple, a house for God's name. But it's David's son, Jesus, who builds God's everlasting kingdom. Abraham, the father of God's promises. David, the king of the promises of God. Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the son of God. And so already there's a lot of expectation about this guy, Jesus, isn't there? Lots of people waiting for him, a long time for him to come. And all of that is just in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, you'll be pleased to know, friends, that we're not going to work our way through all of those names listed there for you. Otherwise, this talk about God's patience might really begin to start testing yours. But what I want us to see in Jesus' genealogy are the repeated exceptions and the patterns. Now, I agree with you. It all sounds a little bit repetitive, But Matthew does a couple of things here that we really need to take notice of. And the first one of those is in verse 2. Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. See it there? And his brothers breaks the pattern. Matthew wants us to see that Israel was a union of 12 tribes. The genealogy isn't simply a list of individuals, but a list of individuals who represent a nation. God's ancient people. In fact, the people named in this list here for you are people who derive their name from Judah, the Jews. The same thing happens there again in verse 11. See it with me. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Similarly, Matthew breaks the pattern again. Jeconiah and his brothers... At the time of the deportation to Babylon, God's people were removed from the promised land. As all of Israel went into exile, all the royal lines, the promises were lost and all of Israel with them. The future of the Jews again looked bleak at the time of exile, as bleak as it was back at the time of Judah. Genesis 38 tells us about an uncertain future for God's people as Judah fails to perpetuate his line. But it's through a Gentile woman named Tamar that God's promises are put back on track. Which brings us to the exceptions in the genealogy and that is the names of the women listed there. In what was strictly a patriarchal society where inheritance was passed through the male. The mention of women in a Middle Eastern genealogy is highly unusual, to say the least. But Matthew names not only one woman, but five women in the genealogy of Jesus. Four of them are from the Old Testament, and even then, one of them, one of the women listed there, he doesn't even mention her by name. What is it that binds these women together? Why does Matthew mention them? Well, not to put too fine a point on it, friends, but a question mark hangs over all of their reputations. Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes. Ruth adopted questionable sleeping arrangements with Boaz. Bathsheba, though not named here specifically but only referred to as Uriah's wife, was an adulteress. And that leaves us with New Testament Mary, who, while being pregnant, still claimed that she was a virgin. Now, while all these women all share in being sinners, as we all do, specifically among the four Old Testament women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba, within their context, within the Old Testament stories about them, those stories actually portray these women as being more righteous than the men who were associated with them. So what is it then that these women have in common? Well, again, Matthew doesn't name four Old Testament women. He only names three, along with Uriah. That, this is mentioned, serves as a historical condemnation of King David, who at the time committed adultery with Uriah's wife and then subsequently murdered Uriah. Forever it brings Uriah's name into the lineage of Jesus. And so the question becomes, what binds Uriah, Tamar, Rahab and Ruth? Ruth? And the answer is, all of them are Gentiles. Tamar the Canaanite, Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite. Don't you see, all of them are outsiders to the promises of God. They're just like us. They're strangers and aliens to God's promised people. And yet now they're grafted into God's family, named as being in the family of Jesus. And so right from the very opening of Matthew's gospel, Matthew's already dropping hints for us that Gentiles and outsiders and strangers and sinners can now all find a place in the promised gracious promises of God. But the most obvious break in the pattern is the one that breaks up the entire genealogy. In fact, it's literally divide, it literally divides it there in verse 11 and 12. See it with me at the time of the deportation to Babylon and after the deportation to Babylon. That's how significant the exile was for Israel. It divides time, but not in a good way. I mean, who mentions catastrophic events in their family tree? Matthew stresses the point for us. The exile was such a major turning point, it even gets named in Jesus' genealogy. It is literally a literal before and after. It's kind of like a major world-changing event. Like the events of 9-11. Like the events of the COVID-19 pandemic. Events so big and so disruptive to us that they divided time, but not in a good way. They became a reference point for everyone because it so captured the attention of everybody. Everybody. And so we talk about life before the pandemic and we talk about life now after the pandemic. That's how big and disruptive it was for us. The deportation to, Israel, to Babylon for Israel was just like that. It was there before and after event, before the deportation to Babylon, after the deportation to Babylon. Except friends, there's more riding on this than just inconvenience like it is for us. There are greater consequences at play here than simply wearing face masks and tighter airport security. Matthew says it like this in verse 17. See it with me. From Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. If Abraham is the father of God's promises and David is the king of God's promises, then the exile indicates the loss of God's promises. Not something to be celebrated, but mourned. The exile was worse than a national tragedy, greater than a natural disaster. In exile, God's promises appeared to be lost forever. In exile, God's promises looked to be eternally broken. In exile, God's promised people are called, not my people, not my children, not my son disowned, abandoned, put up for adoption. God's promise of land to Abraham is now laid waste, stripped bare and scorched. God's promise of a son to David as king forever, now taken captive by another king to a foreign nation. Because Israel deserted and abandoned God, God abandons his promises and deserts his very own people. God gives them what they want. He hands them over to judgment. But judgment is not the final word in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's genealogy doesn't end with the exile. You see, God patiently fulfills his promises. Look there, verse 17. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew even identifies the Christ for us there in verse 16 as Jesus, born of Mary, whose husband was Joseph. Christ or Messiah simply means promised king. He is the long awaited king of Israel and the world, says Matthew. Jesus is the son of all of God's promises, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. Jesus, the focal point. And the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Friends, don't you see? Everyone waits for Christmas, everyone gets to wait for Jesus, even you. God's patience means we all get to wait. Patience is meant to make us different to everybody else. But we want things done yesterday. We want change to happen now. We want our problems solved immediately. We want our lives to be infinitely better tomorrow. We want to be in control of all things because being in control means we get to determine outcomes. But patience means we're not in control at all. God is. Isn't that what we believe? God is patient. And so we need to be patient like him. God fulfills his mission. It is not single-handedly up to us. And so the world doesn't need theological statements. What it needs is people who live what they say they believe. Christian life isn't one to be li- is, is one to be lived. It's not simply one to be discussed on Wednesday nights and over coffee on Sunday mornings. Patience is meant to be embodied by us Because God's patience was embodied for us in Jesus Christ. Patience is at the very character of God. And we need to become more like him. People need example before talk. Because talk is easy. But example is hard. So let me give you some examples. For 25 years... Abraham waited for Isaac to be born. For 40 years, Israel waited and wandered in the wilderness. For 70 years, they were exiled to Babylon. You still got your Bible open? Just the four generations between the names Perez and Aminadab spans approximately 450 years. The six generations from Nashon to David... Total 400 more. And there's 480 years there from Solomon to the exile. Symbolised simply by a blank page in your Bible is roughly 400 years of intertestamental silence between the Old and the New Testaments. My point is, everybody waits for Jesus. Patience. It needs to be exhibited by us. That's what it means to belong to his family. Patience. So, what are you waiting for? Let's pray. Father, none of us like waiting because we live in a world that is instant and instantaneous and on demand and online and we can order in and it can happen immediately and yet none of these things work in your world. You are a God who is patient and we want to confess our impatience. Forgive us, Father, for not exhibiting the character of You, our God and King, in our own lives and towards others, forgive us for wanting to always be in a rush and in a hurry, for wanting results and wanting them immediately, for wanting to be filled with activity just to keep busy because we think that we're producing something. Instead, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us to accept the time that you've given us the pace of life that you've created that we might wait and wait patiently and we thank you father for your promises that weren't fulfilled overnight or fulfilled immediately but in the goodness of time you revealed yourself to your people of old in your son and now we having met him now wait for his return we thank you lord god that every day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to you And so rather than being impatient, would you help us to demonstrate patience to a world that is deeply impatient? May by our lives of waiting and being different, be attractive to those who are outside of the gospel. May we who exhibit patience with our non-Christian family and friends and with our workmates who drive us insane, may our lives live differently draw them to you, Lord Jesus. Help us to be patient because you are a God who has not only exhibited patience for us, but is continually patient with us when we fail and sin. And we confess too, Lord Jesus, that we are sinners. That not only do we become impatient, but we want to take control. We want to determine outcomes. We want things to hurry up. Instead, would you teach us to slow down? To know that you work over a lifetime, over our lifetime, and in our life. And so whatever situation we find ourselves in at the moment, Lord Jesus, as unclear as it might be, as difficult as the circumstances arise, would you help us to see things from your sovereign perspective? Would you give us clarity in our situation now because we know that you work over generations multiple generations to fulfill your purposes teach us to be patient lord jesus and help us to show it to each other for we ask these things in your son's precious name amen